Hello, welcome to Season 2, Episode 6 of The Quest. My name is Alan Mulhern. We now have four podcasts on Carl Gustav Jung. Our first two cover Memories, Dreams and Reflections, which is our chief reference text, and which describes his life and thought. Podcast three and four of this small series will cover the main contributions that he has made to psychology and Western culture in general. Memories, Dreams, Reflections is the most accessible and popular of Jung's writings, an inspiring introduction to the turbulent inner world underlying the bourgeois exterior of an extraordinary visionary. Carl Jung was born in 1875, the son of a Protestant pastor. Although from poor background, he married Emma Rauschenbach, an heiress who brought considerable wealth and independence to his life. He lived through two world wars, fortunately in neutral Switzerland, and died in 1961, a widower with five children, 19 grandchildren, eight great-grandchildren, and 20 volumes of his collected works. Unlike Freud, who destroyed many of his papers, Jung left huge archives. The Philemon Foundation, set up to publish them, estimated another 30 volumes in the wings. Some may wonder where he got the time, but the secret to Jung's prolific output is the creative destructive energy that possessed him. The Gnostic aphorism is apt. If you bring forth what is within you, it will save you. If you do not, it will destroy you. The main source of his life story is this book, published in 1963, two years after his death, and originally planned by Young and Anila Jaffe, his secretary, as a biography written by her with contributions from Young. As she progressed, he asked her to make it more introverted, and therefore significant events in his life were omitted. Memories, Dreams, Reflections, or MDR as we shall call it, is exactly what it says on the cover, Memories and Reflections upon his life and dreams. However, it is the Red Book, written between 1914 and 1930, which is the direct expression of the disintegrative creative core of Young expressed in his mystic writings and paintings, published in 2009 to great acclaim. Young had kept the book relatively secret, but he commented before his death as it was becoming more well-known that it lets the cat right out of the bag and reveals him, his confrontation with the unconscious, to put it generally, his descent to the underworld, to put it mythologically, his attempt to deal with his own disturbance and wounds, to put it personally. Young's distaste for revealing his personal life was well-known and prudent. He agreed to write MDR reluctantly. Although past 80 years old, his workload was intense. He and Anila Jaffe began in 1957 with the idea not of a biography, but an autobiography, with Young as narrator, Anila's first task consisted in asking questions and writing down Young's replies. Although he was reticent at first, he soon opened and began telling of himself, his development, dreams and thoughts with growing interest. It was rather like psychotherapy. After a period of inner turbulence, submerged images of his childhood rose to the surface. One of the tasks of old age 
is to integrate earlier life, and the book may partially be read from this angle. As he became more involved, he wrote down the recollections of his childhood directly himself. A book of mine is always a matter of fate, he said characteristically. It has become a necessity for me to write down my early memories. If I neglect to do so for a single day, unpleasant physical symptoms immediately follow. As soon as I set to work, they vanish, and my head feels perfectly clear. Young did not undertake a book unless he felt it was a task imposed on him from within. MDR makes very attractive and easy reading. One can't go wrong recommending it to anyone. It is simply written, but deeply compelling, authoritative, close to the source of the deep psyche, and the summation of an amazing life's journey. The text makes one feel so close to this man, who in real life was wrapped in arcane mysticism. There are also many books devoted to his life, work, and the application of his ideas, which covered so many fields. Here, in this brief talk, I select those details that illustrate my main thesis, namely that Jung battled intensely with his own disintegrative tendencies and had to find a creative solution to them, for himself and, as he saw it, the collective. Incidentally, the creative-destructive dilemma is a motif that will appear frequently in these podcasts. For it is not only a psychological hypothesis, but a useful tool for understanding many things outside of psychology. For example, the rise and fall of civilizations, used by Arnold Toynbee in his magnum opus, A Study of History, or the concept of the gales of creative destruction, used by Schumpeter, as a metaphor for understanding the innovation process of the capitalist system. It can even be used with respect to supermassive black holes, which are not only the destructive, but possibly the creative centres of all galaxies. Young's parents were poor and unhappily married. His mother has been an easy target for many psychiatric labels, a delusional hysteric, schizophrenic, split personality, the list goes on. Young's father became the pastor in a mental hospital. Carl, the first of their children to live past infancy, was an introverted, solitary boy who had, on the one hand, personality one, a clumsy, awkward, mathematical dunce of a boy living in real time at the end of the 19th century, he notes. And on the other, personality two, an old man living in the 18th century who dressed in high-buckled shoes, wore a powdered wig and drove a fine carriage. He was prone to mystical visions of a disturbing nature. One, for example, of God excreting on a cathedral. At some point, as he confessed to Freud, he was also sexually abused. There is enough in Jung's early memories to assume a sense of goodness and love. However, his mother was, as we noted, psychologically disturbed had an acerbic tongue and was in a sanatorium when he was three years old. He remembers as an infant being in the arms of the maid, which may mean that he loved her. Young reports that he grew up with a definite handicap 
a belief in the unreliability of women, probably referring to his mother. He remembers vividly at the age of three the fearsome dream of an underground terrifying phallus and the voice of his mother in the background saying, that is the man-eater. Surely it is not a coincidence that his mother's committal to a sanatorium happened at the same time as this dream. Young was not only impacted upon by his mother and her illness and disturbance, but he also shared her psychology. Young remembers an event as a young boy when he sat on a stone and had a remarkable experience of being confused. Whether he was sitting on the stone or he was the stone being sat on. Now it is typical of Young's intelligence that in retrospect he gave a sophisticated account of such stories that mixed mythology with individuation, that intoxicating mix that so fascinated others. The stone, he was later to realise, was a symbol of the self. Was he, as the young boy, therefore identified with his ego or with the self? Who was sitting on who? Young had an incredibly powerful sense of another far greater world that underlay our consciousness, that he could pose such questions with the power of a Hindu mystic. For example, with respect to the dream world, he could ask if we had the dream, or is it dreaming us? Are we being dreamt by another realm? He also had an extraordinary gift of translating his experiences of the other world into the language of this, into a compelling narrative, revolutionary concepts, into art and even science. Winnicott, the famous child psychoanalyst, wrote in 1964 in the International Review of Psychoanalysis an assessment of MDR, and especially of Jung's childhood mental condition. He diagnosed him with childhood schizophrenia and a psychotic breakdown at age three, citing maternal failure and depression as the sources of the pathology, manifesting in Jung's divided self. Jung's so-called psychopathology has often been mentioned even by those favourably inclined towards his theories, some of them Jungian analysts. Jung himself wondered if he was menaced by a psychosis, particularly during his confrontation with the unconscious, and his belief that every psychological theory is at bottom a subjective confession adds weight to this thesis. After all, psychotherapy was for him a descent, read disintegration, so that rebirth becomes possible. After Winnicott's diagnosis at distance, there have been many authors and analysts who have given their views, but the consensus is that Jung's childhood disturbance was not psychotic. Winnicott, by way of mitigation, wrote in the same review, quote, I'm not running down Jung by labelling him a recovered case of infantile psychosis. If I want to say Jung was mad and that he recovered, I am doing nothing worse than saying of myself that I was sane and that through analysis and self-analysis I achieved some measure of insanity. So, it didn't matter to Winnicott if Jung was a child of schizophrenic. Indeed, in this amusing and conciliatory comment on Jung's so-called madness, is there not a sense of solidarity in Winnicott's tone? Nevertheless, I believe there is an essential truth in his intuition. 
Young did not suffer a mere disturbance, a neurosis. His affliction was much more serious, and he was eventually forced to descend and face it, as it were, to consciously go mad. His vulnerability lasted beyond his childhood and propelled his search for creative solutions to it. What distinguished his journey was that he so strongly identified it as that of the collective also. His descent to find his soul was for mankind as a whole. Young's personality, as revealed in his work, was a strong mix of opposites. He was careful to formulate his early work as a rational scientist, yet he was psychologically wounded and urgently needed to heal himself through his work. Despite his science, he was compelled to immerse himself in not only mysticism, but the paranormal. Young made numerous highly original and lasting contributions, but the essential was that he put the soul into psychology. This is what makes him loved by his followers and ignored or derided by his opponents. As he grew older, he became more focused on the soul and less on psychology. The recovery of the soul for himself and our times was his calling. Some say that the purpose of depth psychology, which deals with the unconscious, is the understanding of personality and identity. Young made very significant contributions to this field, but for him, his identity was with his soul, for without that, he felt nothing. No success could substitute for this. He was passionately convinced that he, and therefore all mankind, needed to integrate a transpersonal centre, the soul, to give meaning to the rest of the personality. We have therefore two propositions concerning Jung, which we join to create a thread of meaning across his life and work. The first is that he suffered a strong disturbance at his core, in his sense of identity in childhood, that is, in the normal sense of self. The second is that he sought a spiritual or soul dimension. He sought the stone to heal his personality. Remember, his own personal container was shattered at three years old when his mother entered a sanatorium. Also, that his father, a pastor, was unable to provide a spiritual container for him when he was a teenager. The experience of his journey to find the self, capital S, read soul, he offered to others. He came to see that the civilization he was part of, and immensely valued, suffered the same problem. Its greatest sense of self, its transcendent connection, its container had been destroyed, and its now fragmented identity left it open to invasion of dark, demonic forces. Young's own madness was parallel to the outbreak of the monstrous war that erupted in 1914, leaving the civilization of the 19th century in ruins and changing the world forever. He interpreted the social, political and military events of his time in terms of the struggle of his inner world. The reason why Young usually evokes great devotion and intense feelings among his followers and the thousands of analysts that practised the therapy he forged from his own healing, is that we too, I am also a practising Jungian analyst, have suffered this split, this fracturing of the self. And the discovery of Jungian therapy was central to our healing. It was for me. So we are immensely grateful 
we who know the power of this healing method. I became personally fascinated by the nature of this healing force and the method that Jung developed. The 23 podcasts in Season 1 that precede this series are precisely concerned with exploration of the healing of emotional wounds from a Jungian perspective. Thus, it was no accident that Jung was attracted first to medicine, then to psychiatry and then to psychotherapy, especially when he became fascinated by the hidden dynamics beneath consciousness. He made striking contributions in his early work, for example his theory of complexes, and since this corroborated the proposition that the unconscious was the centre of the psyche, he also gravitated towards the great discoverer of the unconscious, Dr Sigmund Freud, almost 20 years his senior, but who was determined to keep the soul out of psychology. Despite their mutual fascination, this was a friendship that could not last. Freud requested, Promise me never to abandon the sexual theory. We must make a dogma of it, an unshakable bulwark against the black tide of mud of occultism. But this was precisely what Jung could not promise. He could not accept the sexual theory as the root explanation of the psyche. Neither could he deny the occult. He reports in MDR that paranormal activity occurred in their first meeting. Loud retorts from the bookcase in Freud's room, where they were sitting, which were linked to psychic activity inside of Jung himself. Freud may have been unaware that Jung's dissertation for qualification as a psychiatrist was on the psychology and pathology of the so-called occult phenomena. Jung became, at first, Freud's crowned prince, his appointed successor, the first president of the International Psychoanalytic Association. But it was not to last. Jung published his own theory of the libido, differing from Freud's, in Symbols of Transformation, Volume 5 of the Collected Works. The distance between them grew, and he was unable to fulfil Freud's essential request. They ceased to meet or correspond. The rest, Jung wrote, is silence. Well, not quite for Jung, because he fell into a personal nightmare. You may recall the myth of Icarus and his father Daedalus, who escaped from prison by constructing wings of wax. Icarus, though warned by his father not to fly too high near the sun, does precisely this. His wings melted and he crashed to the ocean below. In 1913, at the age of 38, Jung crashed and experienced an intense confrontation with the unconscious. He saw visions and heard voices. He worried that he was menaced by a psychosis or schizophrenia. He decided that it was a valuable experience and in private he induced hallucinations or active imaginations. He recorded everything he experienced in journals and transcribed his notes into a large red leather-bound book on which he worked intermittently for 16 years. Out of this experience came the rest of his life's work. He writes, The years when I was pursuing my inner images were the most important in my life. In them, everything essential was decided. It all began then. 
The later details are only supplements and clarifications of the material that burst forth from the unconscious and at first swamped me. It was the prima materia for a lifetime's work. In the court of law, there are different degrees of truth. There is the truth, the whole truth, and then nothing but the truth. So too in autobiography and also in psychotherapy. Young is telling the truth that he met his confrontation with the unconscious. In the fall of 1913, not long after his break with Freud, Young became plagued with peculiar and deeply disturbing dreams. First came one of a monstrous flood that spread across Europe, all the way to the Swiss Alps. He saw thousands of people drowning and civilization itself falling into ruin. Then the flood changed from a deluge of water to one of blood. Subsequent dreams featured images of eternal winter and rivers of blood. Young, who had recorded and studied his own dreams since childhood, was at a loss to relate the bizarre nightmares to anything within his own personal life. He eventually began to fear that he was lapsing into psychosis. Several months later, nationalism and extremism spread across Germany and escalated into terrible violence and international war. The dream suddenly made a kind of sense to him, like symbolic premonitions of what was to come. Nevertheless, Young was not spared his breakdown, or creative illness, as Henri Ellenberger has referred to it. In a short period of time, he resigned from the Burgelsee, where he was deputy director. He also resigned as chairman of the International Psychoanalytic Association, where he had been elected with Freud's support. He was next to resign from the university. He became quite isolated and began his descent. There is, however, another layer to this story not told in MDR. From 1908 to 1910, Young was involved with Sabina Spielrein, who was a young Russian woman who, earlier in 1904, at the age of 19, had entered the Burglesey Hospital as a patient with a psychosis and was treated by Young. On her recovery, she was to work as an intern in the Burglesey alongside Young, who was to encourage her in her study of medicine in Zurich, which she did from 1905 to 1911. In 1908, in her fourth year at medical school, and when she was 24 years old, she and Young, according to her diaries, became deeply involved. Young was 10 years her senior. Insofar as the evidence can be assessed, their affair stopped short of complete sexual intercourse. She wrote to her mother, so far, we have stayed at the level of poetry. That is not dangerous. Lance Owens summarised the documentary evidence in his well-named 2015 book, Young in Love, The Mysterium in Liber Novus. Incidentally, Liber Novus is another name for the Red Book. While Zivi Lothane, a Freudian psychoanalyst and scholar of psychoanalytic history, presents a well-supported argument that a consummated sexual relationship did not exist between them. Most probably a pregnancy would have brought enormous dangers to them both, and Young decided to break it off. However, she threatened to inform Eugene Bloyer, the director of the Burgelsee, and she also confided in Sigmund Freud. There is a three-way correspondence between Spielrein, Young and Freud at this time, in which it was clear that there was an affair of some kind. 
Although Freud, in his correspondence with Jung, referred to Jung's feelings as ones of counter-transference, he later admitted to Sabine Spielrein that his behaviour was too bad. My opinion changed a great deal from the time I received that first letter from you. Peter Lohenberg, among others, has argued that Jung's actions were in breach of professional ethics and that it jeopardised his position at the Bergelsee and led to his rupture with Bloyer and his departure from the University of Zurich. I suspect this is the truth also. Of course, Jung has a right to recount the story of his life without reference to all of its events. He can still tell the truth, while it not being the whole truth. But I suspect there is as yet another layer. Psychotherapists are rarely satisfied with interpreting adult disturbance without reference to material from early childhood. What could it have been from Young's childhood that was being acted out in this dangerous affair? Young has indicated, to repeat, that his mother was disturbed, that she was connected to the spirit world, that she had dual personalities by day and night, that she entered the sanatorium when Young was three, also that while he was attached to his father, he was very disappointed by his religious deadness and despair and that he, Jung himself, had to seek his own spiritual experience. Did not Jung act out precisely all of this in the triangle with Sabine Spielrein and Freud? Jung would not have been the first to fall in love with a young woman, who was an image of his mother when she was young. Did not Sabina enter a sanatorium like his mother? Was she not afflicted by spirits in different parts of her personality also? Was not Freud a father figure? And were there not strong feelings between them? Was he not Freud's crowned prince? But Jung could not be contained by Freud's theories and by what he felt to be a repressive force, Freud's dictatorial manner and his reductive understanding of the psyche, i.e. its lack of spirit. It is striking when one reads the extensive Freud-Jung letters how urbane and polite Freud is throughout, and how difficult, rude and attacking Jung could be with him. Was not Jung forced, like an adolescent with his father, to find his own individuality and spirit? Did not Jung act out in this triangle precisely his own theories, that childhood complexes and traumas shaped the disturbance in the psyche, that is, his own, to which the neuroses and breakdowns in adult life can be attributed, again his own. Within the triangle of Sabine Spielrein and Freud, to say nothing of wife and family, is it not likely that Jung enacted out his childhood trauma and breakdown? Are not all these pieces, including Winnicott's view, part of the jigsaw? And remember, Jung and Freud had no analysts. They didn't enter into a proper long-term analysis with a senior analyst. They invented psychoanalysis and analytical psychology. Would not Freud, had he been Jung's analyst at this time, have pointed out that Jung, protestations notwithstanding, was acting out a classic Oedipus complex? He was the saviour to his distressed mother in the form of Sabina Spielrein entering the Bogelsee, 
and he enacted his disappointment and hostility towards Freud himself as a substitute for his father. Jung's answer was in his withdrawal, descent to his underworld, and eventually his creative discoveries that led him forward on his extraordinary journey. Thus the Freudian interpretation points backwards to childhood and requires the integration of the original trauma or disturbance into consciousness, while Jung's answer to the impasse and crisis was to find a way to the future. In the next podcast we shall cover from chapter 8 onwards in Memories, Dreams and Reflections to the end of the book, which covers the tower in Bollingen, his travels, his visionary world, life after death and late thoughts. In the third podcast on Young, we shall return to chapter 7, which outlines his major contributions in the realm of analytical psychology. And in the final fourth podcast in this series, we shall give a wider critical assessment of his contributions to Western civilization. I hope you can join me for these.